finish the AAPI Heritage Series, we will continue with part two of David Lay's interview. Susan and I interviewed David Lay at the Zhongnai Dance Troupe and the headquarters of the Chinese Performing Arts Foundation right in the middle of Chinatown. It is so important to me that I ask him, how did he start this organization? Because I've been teaching Chinese line dance here in my 20s, and I still participate during Lunar New Year to come to the performances to help out. And it's been such a great organization to be a part of. David Lay's interview was so educational and so eye-opening for me. While listening to it, I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't know this history. And I, I actually started repeating what he said to other people. It made such a huge impression on me. And part two, I'm looking forward to hearing because it's equally as interesting, as equally as educational. I'm right there with you, Susan. I've been telling everyone, even if they haven't listened to our podcast yet, that our first talk with David Lay is something that everybody needs to hear about and needs to know. And so I'm really excited to be able to be here to share the second part with everybody and still excited about all these photos with these colorful lion heads that we have, staring at them. Check them out. (laughs) (laughs) So here's part two of our interview with David Lay as he talks about the Zhongnai dance troupe, one of the first troops that participated in the early Chinese New Year parades. And I can't wait for you all to hear it. I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yi. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. David Lay has been working with the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley to preserve the history of Asian Americans. It's all here. A lot of them have their documents. A lot are gone from the 1906 earthquake and fire, but we still have some. We still have newspaper articles, and I'm trying to gather these to put in Bancroft Library. It belongs in mainstream library. The problem with the Chinese here is that we keep it down here and we give it to the Chinese Historical Society of America. But they don't even have an inventory of what they have. It's not indexed. So researchers don't know about it. We might need to start putting our history in mainstream institutions where researchers will go to to look for material, like uh, Li Xing, she did this with Rick Burns, Ken Burns' brother. And Ken Burns did a series on baseball in America. He went to the Bancroft Library, So give me all your material on baseball in Western America. The Chinese weren't included. We Chinese have baseball team, very good baseball team, from the turn of the 20th century to the 30s. They kept scrapbooks, scores, who they beat, very good teams. The collection was in Oakland's Chinatown. About three years ago, Roland, the guy that talked about why Chinese came, 
he and I got that organization to donate to the Bancroft. So the next time someone wants to write about baseball and go to Bancroft, it'll pop up. So that's why our history is not included. Partially is our fault. We don't have it in mainstream. But in the old days, they would not collect <laughs> ethnic. But now they're very aware that America's comprised of all these stories. And it should be included. So we're trying to have ourselves included in doing things like this. If people listen to it, they will look up something about it. You can go online. What I've told you, you can go online. Court cases are definitely documented. And much, much more. You know, we just have to have a lot more of these conversations to know about each other's history and how they intersect. Yeah. I mean, this... this what you told today is pivotal. It's untold, unrecognized. And, you know, I had an idea of what we were going to talk about today. <laughs> but I also know Mr. Lay has a wealth of knowledge. So this is beyond what I anticipated. I, I, since we are here in Chunglai's studio, can you give us the history of that? And maybe we'll save it for another time. Chunglai means Chinese arts. And in this case, performing arts. And in Mandarin, it would be Zhongyi. Zhongyi Wudao Tuan. Wudao Tuan means dance troupe or performance troupe. I was very active with Cameron House, which is part of the Presbyterian Church in those days. I grew up there. And I always work with younger kids. And I've always felt the boys always had sports. And the guys got together in groups and shared group sports, group activities. The girls had less opportunities for these. They often had a few friends, close friends, but they didn't have group expression. So in 1965, we already had Zhong Lao Drama Club. It was a drama club that my father was very active with. And we said, we should have something for the girls. So I was offered that, but my vision was to create a dance troupe that we can perform for tourists during the summer to create summer jobs for the kids in Chinatown. And for tourists coming in, it's really just souvenir shop. They hardly see anything that's cultural. So we felt that would be a good concept. So we went to a few churches that had dance groups. The Methodist Church had one. The St. Mary's Chinese School had one. They were the best. So we had a few of these groups form this Zhongai dance troupe. And we had teachers from Taiwan come. In those days, the U.S. had no relationship with China. So we went to Taiwan for dance instructors. And then uh, Kenneth Joe later on started to teach. He's up there on the board, too. His picture's up there. And so we formed it. It was mainly girls, and we borrowed the basement of the congregational church on Brennan Place, called Brennan Place. Today's Walter U. Lum Place. And so it was about 20 girls, my brother, myself, and Herbert Wong. 
So there was three guys, and my brother and I did most of the heavy lifting in terms of equipment, costumes. We did the driving. <laughs> I think our first gig was actually 67 at Portsmouth Square. Lonnie Ding, who was one of the founder of NATA, which is supporting filmmakers. She was a filmmaker. Some of our earlier Asian-American films were all done by Lonnie Ding. At the time, she was head of the Neighborhood Arts Program for Chinatown. She got our first gig on Portsmouth Square. It was free. Then our big gig was when Sesame Street first started, and they had the children Woodstock at Golden Gate Park. We were just told they needed a gig on a weekday morning. And I had a hard time getting enough girls to go and perform. They said, for Sesame Street. I had no idea what it was. When I showed up, I couldn't believe the thousands of little kids that were out there with their parents. But we performed on stage. So it was very good that they had different ethnic groups performing for Sesame Street from the very beginning. So we started getting gigs because there weren't too many performance groups that could represent the Chinese community. Then we were invited to go to San Diego to perform over the Christmas vacation to fundraise for a Chinese church. It was a small Chinese church. We thought it would be a church basement thing. We showed up. It was Balboa Park. <laughs> they got the auditorium in Balboa Park, and they filled it. After that, we got really big. And by 69, what I really wanted the group to do was to provide summer job. We hire about 60, 70 kids, $2 an hour. Minimum wage was $1.20. <laughs> so we paid better than minimum wage, but only Saturday, Sunday, when we had more people in Chinatown. And we did two performances a day. And we made enough to break even. So we did it again in 1970. So we did it two years. Then people got real jobs. <laughs> and then less active in doing this. But that's how the group got started. It was not only fun initially, but everybody got paid. But we were only paid for, I think, a month or two the first year because there were disputes. Some of the girls says, well, I take the lead in three dances. You're the chorus. Why should you get paid the same as I? So we started having those issues. And finally, we said, no, we're going to have a cabinet. We're going to elect a cabinet. No one gets anything. All the money goes to the club. And then the clubs would use the money for parties and so on. And if you really need the money, then you go and get a job elsewhere. But this will now be a social organization for fun. And, you know, the club, we've taken many trips to Disneyland. And the whole club went to Taiwan. Everybody, whole summer, eight weeks. The club paid for everything, airfare, everything. Everyone had to pay $100. And it was eight weeks in Asia, and the club paid for everything. This was in 73. We were making 40,000, 50,000 a year because all the money went to the club, and everybody supported that, and the cabinet ran everything. And that was in 69 when we formalized it that way. So 
it just kind of went its own way. I was active until maybe 77, 78, so I wasn't active that many years, maybe 12 years. You've been here longer. <laughs> I've been here since 2007, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, those were 12 wonderful years because I learned how to run an organization because it was very complex. You're working with volunteers. You're working with prima donnas. <laughs> and you have to figure out ways to get them, everybody to work together. You need people to move equipment, fix equipment. You have to have every piece of equipment in the right place to have a performance. Someone forget the drumsticks, you can't perform. <laughs> everybody has to show up. You can't do the line head without the tail. Right, it was responsibility. And we were contracting for a lot of big deals. We performed for a Caesar's Palace, so we had to do the contracts. And we had to collect money. Some people didn't want to pay. For me to run the business I ended up with was easier than running this club. I can see that. Yeah, so in many <laughs> ways, this is really a good platform to learn. And then you learn a lot about your own culture. So this came from that. And we've had had many generations of kids exposed to this. Main thing I want to talk about the club is that they say the American-born kids, Chinese, don't get along with the foreign-born kids. Call FOB, fresh off the boat. And that's true. There's that conflict. Because the FOB don't speak English, and the ABC, American-born Chinese, don't speak Chinese. There is that gap. And normally, the American-born are wealthier. The China-born are recent immigrants. They're struggling. So there's this gap. How do you bring the two groups together? Contact hypothesis. Sociologists have known how to bring people together and have true integration and bonding of different kinds of people. We don't talk about it. We have leaders and teachers as we should have integration, we should get along. No one is saying how. I'm still waiting for one politician to answer how do you do it. We've tried busing and all, none of them work. Look at contact hypothesis. Basically is this. You need three factors for people to really drop their inhibitions and bond and have true integration. One, you have to have contact. Well, you can call a meeting, force busing. You can throw a party. People might come. Not good enough. You need to have equal status contacts. People have to feel equal economically, politically, academically, socially, they have to feel they have equal say, equal power. Lastly, towards a common goal. Okay, we see this in our sports team, group sports. You can see some high school, college, professional teams, all different backgrounds. They're lifelong friends, especially if they have a winning season, right? You, we see that. It's very evident. I see in the group performing arts, music groups, bands, 
come from different ethnicity, if they spent a year traveling together on the road, if it's successful, they're lifelong friends. I see it in this club. We have American-born, China-born. Everybody's equal. Lifelong friends. I'm still in touch with them. The American-born will help the China-born with their English tutoring and vice versa. And we've had that. A lot of personal relationship that's come out of this club, including marriages. <laughs> so that is, I think, the real legacy. And I think for the general public, we need to put our young people in situation where this contact hypothesis is working, where they will have bonding from people that are different from them, that they now are friends to know that this is possible, then there's hope for this country because it works. It really works. And we need to get this message out too. And you can look this up. It's not a hypothesis because it's worked. I've used it for decades. You put people in that situation. You have to manage it somewhat to have good outcome. You know, whether it's academically on a project or even a, in Silicon Valley to form a team, if they're successful in what they do, they're really lifelong friends. They're really proud and they really help each other to make it work, but you just want to make sure everybody is equal, have an equal say, and they achieve that common goal. Everything goes away. You know, that friendship, dance, that's why I'm so active with World Arts West, Ethnic Dance Festival. You see that. At the finale, these people only met each other the Thursday or Friday before. Sunday afternoon, they're best of friends. They're dancing to each other's music. They're backstage for two, three days. They learn from each other. And that common goal is to get the audience to give them a standing ovation. They're so supportive of each other. If I can bring everybody to see the finale of the Ethnic Dance Festival, this is what the world should be. This is what the United Nations should be. And you can do that through dance through the performance arts, through the arts, but it has to be equal status context towards a common goal. And we need to work towards that, definitely, to bring all the groups together at an early age. We just don't do enough of that. I have different narrative about the Chinese-American experience because I've dug in much deeper and I have more sources from the Chinese side. What we have in our books, many of them are written by non-Chinese or Chinese that don't have the connection to come down here. Oftentimes they come down here for a month and they do interviews and then they go write their books and they just don't have the depth. No, they're just skimming the top. Yes. They have no idea. Yes. And it depends on who you ask. You asked him yesterday about Chinese and civil rights. He wouldn't be able to say much. That's true. You ask me, I'll tell you another narrative. So who knows who they ask for this information? You know, it's, uh, it's so different. David Lang. <laughs>
wealth of knowledge. It's amazing. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we hope you learned some incredible things, including my new favorite phrase of contact hypothesis, which creates equal power towards a common goal. And in this instance, alleviated fights between the American-born and Chinese-born people to help feel integrated and equal and really fascinating. I hope you were as awestruck as we have been in our conversation with him. And we hope that you share this with all of your friends because it really needs to be shared and talked about on the history of Chinese coming to San Francisco. So that concludes our AAPI Heritage Series. We would love for you to subscribe, to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. and. We also really want to thank our incredible team here. So Connor Chang is our sound editor. Bisha Rose is our copywriter. Tim Johnson is our web designer. And my husband, Tim O'Shea, is our music director and composer. Beyond the Fog Radio is available on Google, Spotify, or Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye.